Welcome to another chapter of The Book Show here on RTE Radio 1. I'm Rick O'Shea. Afric O'Connell joins me. What are you reading? I'm reading at the moment a book called And the Band Played On by Randy Shields. It's about the AIDS epidemic in the 80s in America, how it was handled. It is excellent, really dense, but excellent. Yeah, there's small sections of crossover between that and what I'm reading at the moment. Olivia Lang's brand new book uh, called Everybody, which is turning out to be brilliant as well. We have something else to talk about, though, and we'll do that a little bit later on. But first... Boys Don't Cry is the debut novel by Fiona Scarlett. While it touches on several big themes such as class, identity and coming of age, it is at its heart a story of two young brothers and the universality of grief. And while the title suggests Boys Don't Cry, you have our full permission to shed a tear while you're reading it. Fiona Scarlett, welcome to The Book Show. Hi Eric, thanks so much for having me on. I'm delighted to be here. Not at all, our pleasure. Tell me, uh, to begin with, you never really set out to be a writer, did you? No, I didn't. So writing was never really on my radar at all. Now, when I was younger, I always loved reading. Like it was my first love, I suppose, reading was. And it was only really when I was about 35, I suppose, that the idea of wanting to be a writer came into my head. So even English, like I always loved English in school, but I actually can't remember any of the creative writing elements of my Leaving Cert at all. Like I absolutely loved plays and poetry, plays in particular. And I think the reason I loved plays is because I am, I'm heavily drawn to character and dialogue, which is everything that's in a play. So it was, yeah, about 35. I remember I was out with my husband just turned around and said, you know something, I think I really want to write. He said, right, off you go, do it. And that's where it started. It was all really about the music with you when you were younger, wasn't it? Yeah, that's right. So my undergraduate uh, degree is in music and I come from a really musical family. Both my parents um, are musicians so that was always there. And when I was growing up, um, I actually wanted to be a paediatric nurse for a long time. But then the music took over um, and I went on and pursued music then first. Yeah. You'd not be the first person to find a circuitous route to writing it at one point <laughs> or another. There's a very definite origin, though, to the story of Boys Don't Cry, isn't there? This all grew out of a tweet. Yeah, so it was about three years ago, just over three years ago, I was, of course, procrastinating on Twitter, as you do. And um, I was in the middle of doing an MLIT in creative writing. And I did that in the University of Glasgow via distance learning. And at the time, um, working full time, still working full time. And I just wasn't in a position to be able to give up work to pursue a master's. Um, so luckily, I was able to attend this one uh, via distance learning and all the lectures and that were in the evening time. So it really suited me. So I was there anyway, scrolling through Twitter and this tweet came up from a paediatric palliative care doctor and he had tweeted about himself and the nurses had asked children in their care what they were going to miss the most when they died. So it was incredibly moving and incredibly powerful tweet. And after reading that, I literally opened up a Word document and wrote the first chapter of the book. And the book, it's practically identical to what it was those three years ago. It's probably the only chapter in the book that... um, wasn't heavily edited or there's nothing really changed in it. So it's um, that was the spark of inspiration for the story was was that. Yeah, the story is uh, that of two brothers. Finn is 12, Joe is 17. And we see things through through both of their eyes. But Finn is making that list of all of those things that he'll miss on the very first page. So we know that he's dead from the very outset of the book. That's a very yeah. difficult place to start as a writer. Yeah, do you know, it's strange. That's something that I grappled with as well. That whole idea of um, should the readers know from the very beginning that he has died? And 
the story, it's really funny because after reading that tweet, the whole story was was there and it, it was sort of in my head. The characters were there. And originally I thought I was going to write it about uh, Finn and his ma, Annie, sort of interspersed between the two of them. But when I actually sat to write it, it was Joe that came out. Um, so it was only in the editing process when I was sort of thinking, oh, God, maybe maybe I shouldn't have this at the very beginning that we know that Finn has died. Um, but it just felt right for the story and I didn't want it to be a sort of cheap trick that we learn later on that he has died. And again, I'm not saying that any book that does do that, that there's a reveal later on, that it is a cheap trick, but just for the type of book that I was writing and that and it being a sort of exploration of grief and all those type of things, um, that for this book, it was necessary for the reader to know at the beginning what had happened, I think. I think I had a similar conversation at one stage with Mike McCormick about Solar Bones, which starts again with a character who's already passed away and is narrating the whole story. Joe has a scholarship to this posh school to St. Augustine's. There's a real friction between those two worlds. He's very much a fish out of water. Yeah, and uh, like even though the spark of this um, book, the inspiration for it came from that tweet, but a lot of it is my own father's experience. So my dad, he grew up in inner city Dublin, uh, just off Dorset Street. Well, he was sort of around loads of different places, Carver Fringles, a lot of different places. That's where he called home. So when he was about 10, his his own father signed up him and his brother. There was a man in Parnell Square giving free music lessons to children living in the area. And so Grandad signed up uh, my dad and his brother Kieran. And he just saw something in the two of them and ended up, the two of them ended up with scholarships to the College of Music. And then music was everything for my father. Like it was literally his whole life. And then when my dad was in his mid-30s, he went to college to train as a music secondary school teacher and then went on to teach in our local community, wanting to give back to the community and to children in his care the opportunities that he was given himself um, so sadly, he passed away in December. So there's a lot of mixed feelings around the book here. But a lot of a lot of my dad being Joe as well in that sort of, you know, um, straddling as well. And just one thing I really wanted to get across in the book as well is that you can see with teachers or with different people throughout it is that you just need that one person really to believe in you and to give you a chance and to stick by you no matter what. And that it can it can make a difference, you know. There's a, an element almost of like an imagined Ballymun in this story yeah. as well. Tell me about that. Yeah. So my mother is from Ballymun and uh, so I know Ballymun quite well. And my dad as well, when he was about 17, they moved to Ballygall, which is right beside Ballymun. So I know that area really well. So visiting the grandparents there. Um, so when I was writing, it is like that imagined Ballymun Towers is, it was in the background. That's sort of the landscape that was imagined for the book as well. So it's funny. So even subconsciously, like all of that was there as I was writing it. I wasn't really thinking about it, you know, when I was writing down that first draft. But it's a sort of culmination of all different family experiences all sort of rolled into one, you know. <laughs> so you've got themes in here of grief and of class and of social disadvantage. At any stage, was there a message you had when you were writing this or when you were writing? Was that the last thing on your mind? Yeah, for me, it was really, really important that 
um, it's this is just a snapshot of this particular family in this particular time dealing with this particular circumstance. So I was really, really conscious that I didn't want me in there at all. And I think part of my job as a writer is to to remove myself as much as possible from the story. So I didn't want it to be like patronising or condescending or me on a soapbox or any of these type of things making any sort of political points. Of course, people are going to like things are going to come out of it that you didn't really realise. But that was one thing that I think is really, really important to me as a writer is that I can remove myself as much as possible from a story and just let the characters speak for themselves as real people, if that makes sense, without my hand being in there. I know that sounds daft because I made them up. But <laughs> <laughs> Maybe just just to finish, you did say earlier yourself about about your father being so influential when it came to this and obviously his, his passing at the at the end of last year. Now that the book is yeah. is out there and it's being talked about and it's in the real world, is that a strange situation for you to be in? Yeah, it's a very, very surreal one, um, to be honest. And again, like I was saying before, it's the response to it being, has been absolutely like it's been so lovely and the messages I've been receiving from readers and everything else but it's because I wasn't expecting it and I think because you sort of separate it from yourself a little bit it's it's hard to explain you're like oh yeah there's my book and this is me um, but when it's out there it all becomes entwined and together so it's trying to get used to that I suppose as well you know. <laughs> I'm absolutely sure I will see you again in the procrastinating time on uh, social media. But Fianna Scarlett, it's been brilliant to talk to you and thanks for joining us on The Book Show. You too. Thanks so much, Rick. I was delighted to be here. So thank you. Boys Don't Cry is published by Faber. Now, Afric O'Connell is in studio with me, armed with timely tips and recs. And Afric, we can be confident that pretty much everybody has had the experience of a reading rut recently, including myself and yourself. Without a doubt, even the most dedicated of readers who read for pleasure are going to have experienced this at some stage. The times where you just couldn't be bothered to pick up a book or, you know, start a new book or anything like that particularly over the last couple of months, my concentration has gone down the drain and it's just really difficult sometimes, really difficult to kind of lift yourself out of that spell. You have some ideas, some tips. Where do we start? I do. So if you want to like drag yourself out of a reading rut, there are some really good tips that help me when I'm in the same position. If, if you're going to start a new book, you need to give it a chance. You need to do three chapters in one sitting. Make sure you wait for a time when you know you're going to be on your own. You know you're not going to be interrupted. Your phone is in, you know, you turn your phone off and you just go for it. Give it three chapters. Give it a fair crack. You'll have a good feel of it around that time and it'll set you up to set up the habit again. I will add to that. Take your phone, switch it off. Put it in another room where you can't see it. That works for me. Uh, Sometimes you can break the logjam, though, by going back to stuff that you love. 100%. This is one of my favourite ways to get out of a rut is to go back to something that you know you love and that you know has served you before. My favourite of all time is uh, Carvana Good Breakfast of Champions. I've read it about 50 times and it always gets me back into the swing of things if I've lost it for a while. I was not expecting that as an answer. (laughs) In in terms of genre, uh, is there anything 
that works better than other genres for you? Yeah, for me, there is. In terms of in terms of getting into something quickly and not hanging around, twisty thrillers are really good because they're designed to hook you from the very beginning. So something like The, the Woman in the Window. Also YA, like young adult novels are brilliant because they're geared towards a certain concentration span and they're brilliant. They're not going to keep you waiting. So stuff like that. Start easy. It's not about being worthy. There's no embarrassment here. This might be the key one. Normalise giving up on a book. This is so important because it feels like the last thing that you should do. It feels like a sin. But sometimes things just don't work for people. You're wasting your time. You're only going to enjoy reading less if you're struggling through it. So absolutely, if it's not working for you, put it down. Normally for me, it's 100, 150 pages. I gave up on one recently after 19. There is no problem with this. Just nope. walk away from it. It's not for you. It's not and for you. And always have a kind of go-to list at hand as well. This is something that I love because if I hear something like on this show or on other shows, if, if I hear an author interviewed and it sounds like something I've already loved, note it down and just have it so that you're ready to go when you're ready to break the logjam. And that worked for me recently with The Push by Ashley Audrain. I heard her interviewed on Radio 1. Brilliant book, sounded like something else that I um, liked and I loved it. You have some actual recommendations just before you do yours. I'm going to throw two in there as well. Yeah. Ronan Hessian's Leonard and Hungry Paul, which is a great big, warm, wonderful hug of a book that will restore your faith in humanity. And for me, it's always David Sedaris. Uh, I go back to David yes. Sedaris's essays and it makes me laugh like a drain. Those work for me. What about you? As I said to you already, my favourite book of all time is Breakfast Champions by Kurt Vonnegut. Maybe not work for everyone, but it's amazing and I love it. Uh, there are also Carol Kelly books by Paul Howard I absolutely love. They're so easy. They're so funny as well. They're brilliant. Um, neither Here Nor There, Bill Bryson, Tears of Laughter, um, his travels in Europe. We need to talk about Kevin by Lionel Shriver, which is Another a little bit strange dark. one. Yeah, mm-hmm. <laughs> it's a little bit okay. dark. Uh, Daphne Demarie, Rebecca, which is also a bit weird, but I read it when I was young and I know I love it. And Patricia Cornwell and the Case Scarpetta books for a thriller kind of thing as well. Great stuff. And now that I think about it, I've read a lot of very short books over the last 12 months, sub 200 pages, even sub 150 pages. That can yeah. sometimes be the one that nudges the problem Definitely. out of the way. Africa O'Connell, as always, it's been lovely. Thanks a million. Thanks for having me. Now it's time once again for an author to meet their readers. Here's Susan Roger to tell us about this week's book club. Bookmarks Book Club began in November 2010 as an initiative of the manager of Fox Rock Parish Pastoral Centre and 10 ladies signed up for that first meeting and continued to meet monthly on a Tuesday in the parish centre over a cup of coffee and a slice of cake, usually homemade. We all live locally to the centre and when the pandemic arrived we moved our meetings onto Zoom, first monthly, then weekly to discuss our book choice and to just simply connect and chat about whatever was current and topical. We have enjoyed more than 100 books since our club began, and the first was The Secret Life of Bees by Sue Monk Kidd. Our current book is Donal Ryan's Strange Flowers. We try to incorporate many different genres into our monthly choices, and some of our favourite reads over the years have been The Go-Between by L.P. Hartley, The Paris Wife by Paula MacLean, The Great Gatsby by F. Scott Fitzgerald, The Midnight Library by Matt Haig, and A Dictionary of Mutual Understanding by Jackie Coppleton. So, what's kept our club together all this time apart from a love of books and reading? Ten strangers have become ten friends, and we have evolved into a social group who go out for Christmas lunch every year 
and hope to celebrate our 10th anniversary as soon as restrictions allow. That's another long-standing book club uh, this week. The book that we're going to talk about is Connor O'Cleary's The Shoemaker and His Daughter. It tells a story of what life was really like during the heyday and the fall of the Soviet Union via the prism of a family history of the author's Russian wife, Jana, who he met while stationed in Moscow for the Irish Times. Jana is, of course, the daughter in the book's title and her father, Stanislav, is the shoemaker. Connor O'Cleary, welcome to the book show. Thank you very much, Rick. Well, we have some great questions to come, uh, far better ones possibly than the uh, last time I was on stage with you at the Rolling Sun Festival in Westport when the two of us talked about this book. Uh, we're going to check the first question from the Bookmarks Book Club. It is from Phil Young, who is herself a published author. Connor, when I was reading your book, I was struck by the general response to the imprisonment of your father-in-law just for selling his car at a profit. He was a hard-working and highly respected man, and yet no one seemed to question the injustice of the sentence. On that topic, as an Irishman, when you lived in Moscow, did you find such strict adherence to the system worrying or even a bit scary? Well, thanks very much, Phil, for that question, and it goes to the heart of the matter. In Soviet times, people were very fatalistic, and um, when the courts made a ruling, there was no mechanism to question an injustice. Uh, Stanislav's aunt was actually a very prominent member of the uh, Communist Party. She was a, a member of the Supreme Soviet. And she was able to get to a very important Kremlin official called Rodenko to plead the case. And he said, if we overrule the, the verdict of the court, we would have to judge the uh, judge to have uh, misbehaved. So the family, of course, were outraged. Um, he did take it all on the chin, uh, his character. He was always cheerful. He was never bitter, uh, but after serving a sentence, he did have to flee the town of uh, Grozny, where they lived, uh, to go to Krasnoyarsk in Siberia to escape the shame of having been in prison. As regards my own life in Moscow during Soviet times, as a foreigner, I was very privileged. Um, the foreign community had access to special shops. We, we, we lived much better than Soviet citizens, I can tell you. But we had to be careful. Our phones were tapped, we knew. And um, to be quite honest, I was too excited by the, the idea of being in Russia reporting all these exciting changes that Gorbachev was bringing in. I was, however, a bit scared for Jana when the KGB tried to uh, get her to spy on her new friends that she met through me. Um, but uh, the changes were happening fast and the threat that they would withhold her doctorate, which she was studying for, had never materialised. Our second question this week comes from Anne O'Shea. I was also intrigued by the acceptance of the communist system by the general public, of which there were some benefits, particularly if you were a member of the party. Zana, your wife, for instance, benefited from a very good education, which later opened many doors for her. However, she obviously became disillusioned with that system. Having lived here now for a number of years, has Zana any sense of disappointment with what we call democracy and with the Western way of life? That's a very good question. Zana, she's uh, very passionate uh, about politics. She was a deputy in the parliament of Krasnoyarsk region and she was a member of the party herself. Uh, she contrasts the Soviet Union with the West in different ways. However imperfect the Soviet system was, she had access to education, culture, personal development. And of course, uh, people who are nostalgic about the Soviet Union look back like Jana's mother is. Uh, they look back at the time when 
and nobody had very much, but it was the same for everybody, unlike today. Uh, when she came to the West, she was um, a bit disillusioned when we went first to the United States for five years when I was transferred there by the Irish Times. And she was a bit disillusioned to see the inequity of the system there. But no matter, no matter how imperfect, she would tell you that the, the system of democracy that she now has lived in in the West for the last 30 years, she thinks is the best form of government. She's very passionate now about Brexit and about uh, watching events in the United States and, of course, in Russia. Here's Kira from the Bookmarks Book Club in Dublin with question number three. Connor, I'd love to know how you put a structure on the book. You wrote about Zana's family history in parallel with an extremely interesting and detailed description of the workings of the communist system at the time. How did you do your research? What access to documents did you have? And were you able to travel to the different places referenced? That's a very good question. The book was two years in the writing and in the thinking and, and the polishing. i tell you an interesting thing that happened during the editing. Uh, I had uh, submitted my book to um, uh, Transworld, where the editor there was Brian Langan. And my first chapter, which is now in the book, was the uh, successful search for Jana's grandfather's grave in Romania. And I had it as the last chapter and the climax of the book. Uh, he said, no, no, you should put it as the first chapter. And he was right because by doing that, I was able to introduce the characters, create curiosity, and uh, then uh, proceed with the chronology. As regards documents, uh, because I'd lived so long in the Soviet Union, I was able to access Russian documents. And as, after the breakup of the Soviet Union, a lot of things became available, like, for example, how the courts worked. And uh, I was able to get lots of photographs from the family, of course. And the one photograph that really excited me is the picture of Stanislav in prison, uh, where he's there accompanied by his wife, his wife's mother, uh, several other prisoners, and Jana and her sister Larissa, who were, of course, little kids at the time. And they're having a picnic. And, you know, our image of life inside the Soviet prison is conditioned by our knowledge of the, of the Gulag. And we think it's terrible. But, you know, Stanislav had made the prison officers happy by making boots for them. And Marietta had made clothes for them. And a friend had brought them lots of vodka. So <laughs> life in, in the prison in Grozny wasn't too hard. That sounds like quite an extraordinary thing to come across, uh, Connor. Question number four about the shoemaker and his daughter is from Rosaline O'Reilly Healy. Apart from Jana, what do you love most about Russia? And do you see any similarities between the Irish and the Russian people? <laughs> I, I fell in love with Russia when I was a teenager. Um, I was growing up in Belfast. I remember uh, putting down half a crown a week for five weeks to buy a copy of Dr. Zhivago by Boris Pasternak. And I'd read all the Russian classics. And this you know, gave me a great love for Russia. And in fact, one of the things that uh, Jean and I loved to do in Moscow was go to Pasternak's grave. Uh, in a little village called Periodelkino, and especially on a Sunday when people who loved his poetry would gather there and recite his poetry. And, you know, there's very few countries where people do things like that. Uh, I love the intensity of Russian discussion in the kitchen, the always matters of life and fate. And I, I love the winters. And I think regarding the Irish and the Russians, there are two nations that can name their poets. If you ask anybody in Ireland or in Russia to name the country's poets, they will. And not 
Every country can do that. But I'll tell you a story about how the Irish and the Russians can get on very well. When Air Rienta in 1989 applied for the first duty-free concession, their rivals were Pan Am, a big American uh, company. And while Pan Am arrived on the day of the contract to be decided and took up a floor of an hotel, the Irish had been there for months drinking with the Aeroflot officials who would make the decision, going to the banya with them, getting getting to know them very well. And, the, you know, Irish and Russians always do get on very well. And uh, we, sh we share a love of uh, making toasts after dinner. And, uh, of course, alcohol is one of our common denominators as well. Our final question for you, Connor O'Cleary, comes from Cathy Crowley. Your mother-in-law, Marietta, was a wonderfully strong woman who supported the family in so many ways. You must have admired her greatly. And did she ever get over here to visit the Emerald Isle? I was so enraptured by her description of the USSR, I was inspired to visit Russia myself. And there I saw the beauty of the Hermitage and the Winter Palace. But was brought down to earth by the memory of your fascinating book. Have you and Zana revisited Russia lately? And what are your thoughts on the Putin regime? Well, there's a lot there, Cathy, and um, I'm delighted to know that you visited Russia and that I helped inspire you in some way. I do admire and I love my mother-in-law greatly. Uh, she's a strong woman in a family of strong women. She and uh, Stanislav, who unfortunately died uh, four years ago, uh, Mariette is now 80, but they came on visits here three times and once to the United States when we were based there. I remember Marietta going into a, a very large department store in Washington and uh, she cried when she saw the extent of food there for uh, pets, uh, whereas at that time in Russia you could hardly buy meat. You asked me for my thoughts on the Putin regime. Uh, we're looking now at a police state, uh, which is very similar to the Soviet Union, except that you can now do what you like in Russia. Uh, you can start a business, you can travel around the country, you can travel abroad, uh, but you can't challenge the system. And as a journalist, I'm very distressed by what's happening to the media. It's now on the index of press freedom uh, Ireland sits at number 12 and Russia is at number 150. I, I'm very distressed at what's happening in Russia today and the attitude of uh, Russia to the outside world. I don't see how that's going to change in the near future. At the same time, we do travel to Russia once every 18 months or so. Unfortunately, during the pandemic, we weren't able to go to Krasnoyarsk for Marietta's 80th birthday last year. Uh, but let's hope we can do that sometime in the near future. Unfortunately, we have to leave it there. But Connor O'Cleary, thanks a million for joining us on The Book Show. Thank you very much, Rick. The Shoemaker and His Daughter is published by Doubleday. Thanks to Connor O'Cleary and to the Bookmarks Book Club in Fox Rock in Dublin for the questions. If you'd like to volunteer your book group to take part in a future episode, you can drop us a line to bookshow at rte.ie. That's it for the book show this week on RTE Radio 1, the podcast available wherever you find yours and you can find us on Twitter and Instagram at bookshowrte. Don't forget, libraries reopen all across the country tomorrow, May 10th. I'll talk to you again next week. And as ever, don't forget to check with your local bookshop 
or your local library for any of the books that we feature on the programme. 